there's a quality of our being that shines through our attention that we could say is our inner light. And it might not look like the kind of light that we see, you know, emanating from a lamp or the sun or something that our mind's image would come up with when we say the word light. But it, it is a type of light of consciousness that is shining through really our whole being and many centers of our being, you know, our heart, our soul, our, our, um, our energy body, our chakras. I mean, so many aspects of who and what we are, but it also definitely shines through the, the light of our attention. When it expresses in a way that that light is really perfumed with the essence of what we are, there tends to be a, a real quality of stillness to it. And that stillness is a really powerful thing because it has a transmission. And in a world that's more chaotic, how I would put it is that the chaotic patterns really feel the presence of that stillness when it's potent. And they can entrain to that stillness in a way that settles them and slows them down. Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand podcast. My name is Michael Riley. I want to thank you all for the wonderful feedback on our most recent episodes. We've had some great episodes with other spiritual teachers like today's guest, Mukti. Uh, episodes with Mirabai Starr, Kabir Helminski, Ellen Emmett, Gail Brenner, and also scientists like Neil Thies and Monica Gagliano. So we invite you to check out our archive of episodes at scienceandnonduality.com slash podcast. And our episodes are now on YouTube, so you can go listen over there and connect with us. And of course, on Spotify and on Apple Podcasts, we invite you to leave a good five-star review, which helps spread the word and the mission of sand through this podcast. So today on the show, I'm delighted to be in conversation with spiritual teacher Mukti. And Mukti's name originates from the Sanskrit, which is most often translated as liberation, a term used in Vedanta and Buddhism, much in the same way as the word salvation is used in Christianity. Mukti has been an associate teacher of the Open Gate Sangha since 2004, and has been a student of her husband, Adi Ashanti, who's also a beloved presenter and teacher in the sand community. When he began teaching in 1996, when they founded Open Gate Sangha together. And we have a wide ranging and beautiful discussion today about many topics, including spiritual bypassing in the shadow, the sacredness of attention, the importance of spiritual community, the spiritual path and paradox, the shared field of awareness, holographic being, the importance of fundamentals and practice, and the energetics of awakening, which is a new series that Mukti is offering through the Open Gate Sangha. And you can find out more about this series happening in June 2023 in our show notes or on the Open Gate Sangha website. And now, without further ado, I bring you Mukti on the Sounds of Sand podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality.
Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious. Being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Okay, I'm here with Mukti. Thank you so much for being on the Sounds of Sand podcast. It's wonderful to reconnect with you again in the sand community. Great to be here, Michael, and and to be here with all the listeners. So to begin, I just wanted to ask, um, what's what's present for you right now in in your teaching and, and where you are with the Sangha and your work in general? That's a great question. Um, it's always good to feel the edge and, you know, leaning in and keep leaning in. Um, well, well, coming up pretty soon, I'm going to be presenting a series of talks this June, uh, four Thursday evenings on the energetics of awakening. Mm. So in my being, I've been really looking at uh, all that I've been sort of banking in, in my knowledge uh, over the last uh, couple decades of my own unfolding, but also, you know, much of what I've been taking note of as I work with people in counseling and uh, my teachings. And so um, it's taken me a number of years to get to this point where I feel ready to, to really tackle that topic because it's, it's, uh, it's truly a, a vast topic. And I'm sure I'll only touch into just a fraction of it and I probably you know, only know a tiny fraction of this vast topic, but I, I do know and have come to know a lot about it. So I'm really excited to see um, just how it's going to land in terms of how I'll structure it and um, how it'll be received. And I think that there's there's so many different aspects to the energetics of awakening, you know, whether it's... Um, a kundalini unfolding or transmission or shakti or um, just uh, just your garden variety energy that that might uh, shift as maybe more influx of, of energy comes through your system and the body acclimates and mm-hmm. there's just so much to, to look at there. And of course there's all of the energetics that come into play in uh ways that people tend to awaken mm-hmm. where a lot of the opposites, you know, find a perfect blend as people are, you know, grounded and resting down and in, but also, you know, taking their stand or their seat and, and um, really presenting out to the world. And so there's that balance of in and out and mm-hmm. uh, gathered and ex- ex- expanded, you know, um, receptive, active, all of those opposites and just how we can come to know them better through all kinds of things, um, posture practices, Mm. um, states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can imagine there's such a wide dynamic of energy that you can experience in individual and collective awakening. So it sounds like a huge topic. It is. Yeah. And yeah. st- stuckness too, I guess, like like expectation mm-hmm. that it, that it 
that an awakening should have a, this, you know, constant um, blossoming, but you know, dealing with those times when the energy yeah. is stuck and it's just not going anywhere, and you feel like you're in a rut. Right. Yeah. When it's stuck or contracted, or you know, maybe sort of turning inward, or um, yeah, there's there's so many different aspects to it. I. I'm really grateful for the time I spent studying Chinese medicine mm. and a lot of the patterns that energy can take or or the energetic patterns of different emotions or states of mind because or states of being because it's it really helps me to find a languaging that that people um, can step into, you know, kind of model of of um, how to perceive energy in a way that we can communicate about it. Mm. You mean like the five elements in Chinese medicine, that paradigm? Uh, sometimes I talk about that, but mm. I try to keep it even a little simpler. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's just something as simple as, um, you know, like you were talking about stuck energy and sometimes stuck energy will start to kind of turn more inward and a person will become more depressed or mm -hmm. despondent or it'll start to kind of turn outward and, you know, it'll be stuck and they might feel kind of irritable or frustrated and then, you know, angry, upset, rageful. So there's like different ways that stuck energy can turn. There's ways that um, energy becomes more stuck if we're more exhausted, you know, because it's kind of like if you think of our, our energy like a, a flowing river or something, if there's not much of it, it chugs along and <laughs> kind of starts to get stuck and coagulated. But if you gain energy, then the water start to move again. And, you know, so it's uh, sometimes really helpful to, to just be conscious of some of those basics and um, that can help steward our energy and also give us guidance as to where to put our attention to um, cultivate what we need to, to feel more replete and, and uh, full. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I did see too that you offer qigong on your website. So is is um, the energy of the body is is a, a huge part of this too? Because I th I think maybe a lot of times people think of meditation or contemplative practice as just happening from the neck up. So is that part of your work as well? It is. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I I've, I'm not uh, like a qigong master or anything, but mm -hmm. I do share some basic routines and exercises that I think are are helpful and invite people to, you know, study the whole um, model of Qigong, you know, in, in deeper ways, should they become interested. But I do think the body is, is so intimately connected with all this, not only, you know, as an instrument that can help um, guide our awareness to certain states that are often, um, more revolutionary or transformative when our systems are come into balance, but also um, the body can can kind of be a diagnostic. Like we can sense like when things are off or or um, they don't resonate or hit the mark, and and you know so it's really uh, the body can be both something that can diagnose but also treat because we can. We can then correct our posture, correct our our uh, energetics, and it'll completely change our state of consciousness. So, uh, speaking about about stuck energy and uh, 
this flow of dynamics that can happen in awakening. One thing that we've been talking about a lot on this podcast and at Sand is um, the role of shadow in spiritual work. Um, so I'm just curious in your role as a teacher and, and leader of the Open Gate Sangha, um, are you holding space for the shadow? Do you see that as, a, as an important theme in, in the work of the Sangha? Uh, well, I'm not entirely familiar with how you're using the, the term and, mm-hmm. and um, shadow. Um, certainly in my work, I invite the human experience, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the rawness of it and um, the grittiness. And in myself, probably more than Adya, I do work a lot, of, a lot with people with respect to different emotions that they're experiencing that's, you know, are all part of the gamut of of the human experience and, and how, how our nature spirit and that, um, that gaze of eternity and that stillness, silence, spaciousness can really support our emotions to, that are difficult emotions or, or repressed or denied emotions to, uh, reharmonize and, and, um, repattern into uh, a greater integration with a sense of wholeness of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That the, the word shadow is kind of <laughs> another one of these big ambiguous terms. But I guess I was thinking specifically about spiritual bypassing. So the the idea of kind of skipping over the, the dark, difficult grit that you were talking about and just kind of moving into... Um, yeah, the language of transcendence, the language of absolute spirituality. Yeah, that's that's something that I think I can't really speak for. Oh, I guess I can I speak for Adya, but because he and I talk about, you know, that it's so important to have foundations and things like meditation and engaging in the world and being um, like a highly functional you know, human being that, that isn't just escaping into the transcendent and, and gosh, for almost three decades now, we've really emphasized meditation retreats and lots of practice that, that ground people in the body Mm -hmm. and, um, and hopefully make for, you know, very integrated people. So that's that's yeah. our interest and uh, what our aim has been. And Aji's roots have been in Zen, mm-hmm. which is you know a, a tremendous um, tradition as far as really having a sense of the expression of awakening be such a, a dominant uh, part of the tradition. You know, it's, it's not just about having a realization, but how does it express in mm-hmm. life, in activity? And uh, yeah. so that's, that's certainly something that's incredibly important at Open Gate. Right. So it's, yeah. it's not so much about the individual states of awakening, but how the, how does that manifest in your relationships with other people and, the uh, the daily the daily grind I guess you could say it's about the relationships to some extent but it's also it's about the movement of consciousness you know and how how it uh, takes up residence in the human form and expresses through us 
And we're constantly in relationship, you know, whether it's with the cup of tea we're drinking or the, you know, ground we're walking on or the person we're with. But um, I wouldn't say necessarily that our emphasis is on relationships um, per se. It's more on the the practice and um, the, and in my case, especially like just the integration mm-hmm. of that with uh, the body. So I, I'm, focus more on things like body meditations and um, being present with whatever arises really. Does that answer your question? Yeah. 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 No, I didn't mean to say that there's an emphasis on relationship. I was saying more that, and uh, let's say a de-emphasis on, on um, uh, really specific, uh, transcendent states like so someone might have this yeah. uh you know uh, shakti rush through the body or this like you know kundalini awakening for just a few minutes during a meditation um but if they're not not able to kind of integrate that into into their lives it, it maybe loses its um impact i think that some people do kind of uh, seek a certain um you know, highs or hits. And uh, I've even known some people that just kind of make a lifestyle of just going around, shopping around for, you know, the next event, uh, the next teacher, the next um, great experience. And I I feel that to really ground oneself in an, in an evolving consciousness, it's it's just really important to instead of digging like you know a hundred holes a foot deep to you know really just dig one hundred feet deep type thing to, mm-hmm. and I think that that's often supported through developing a, a foundational practice mm-hmm. like meditation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you, so you use the word evolving, and so I'm, I was also curious about how your teaching has evolved, and if, if you feel like, especially in the last few years, where we've seen a really rapid um, societal changes, um, you know, environmental collapse, the pandemic, but you know, things like social media and artificial intelligence. Have you have you noticed your own teaching evolving in the last few years? You know. Ironically, I sometimes feel like it's it's returning more and more to basics, mm-hmm. and um, just reminding people of really foundational things that are more accessible. Because as the complexity of the outer world grows, I think it's great for people to have just very solid basics, yeah. you know, and and really to get a sense of what it is to return to the perspective of, you know, what they've called in Zen beginner's mind, mm-hmm. you know, just having that, that fresh view of the moment that is a time to really put down all the complexities and return to a sense of being that has its own organic rhythms and intelligence that, that really is patterned a, a very differently than a lot of the 
complexities and and sometimes chaos and division that's that's been arising in mm. in the collective. So I guess you know in some ways we could say that the most evolved is often the the simplest, mm-hmm. you know. When when I was in acupuncture school studying Chinese medicine, probably the the most revered teacher who would sometimes come to our school as a guest speaker or guest um, practitioner, and I'm sure I'll pronounce her Chinese name wrong, but it, something to the effect of Sher Hua Li. She, um, she was in her 80s at the time when I was in school, and she always encouraged us to, to come up with a treatment plan for a patient that used one needle. Mm-hmm. And um, so just to, to really learn a discipline so well that you know know how to bring the essence of it into like one um, instrument or one focus of attention. And it it felt like, wow, you know, the most advanced person has a depth that that can return to to one simple thing. Yeah. And uh, so probably instead of evolving in a way that might seem new or, or um, um, more, I don't even know, like more complex. It's a kind of evolving back to simplicity, I guess. attention actually was something else I was going to ask about because you could say that with social media specifically and our smartphones and things like that our attention is basically under attack you know so these companies mm-hmm. want us to be distracted and quickly jumping from YouTube video to YouTube video or you know phone alerts etc so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about uh, how sacred our attention is in spiritual practice and why it's perhaps important for people to um, develop these states of, of grounded attention that you're speaking about. I love that question uh, because there's so much being said in it. There's a quality of our being that shines through our attention that we could say is our inner light. And it might not look like the kind of light that we see you know, emanating from a lamp or the sun or something that our mind's image would come up with when we say the word light, but it it is a type of light of consciousness that is shining through really our whole being and many centers of our being, you know, our heart, our soul, our, our, um, our energy body, our chakras. I mean, so many aspects of who and what we are. Uh, but it also definitely shines through the the light of our attention. Mm -hmm. And um, when it expresses in a way that 
that light is really perfumed with the essence of what we are, there tends to be a, a real quality of stillness to it. And um, that stillness is a really powerful thing because it has a transmission. And in a world that's more chaotic, it, it functions, as I would put it, this is you know kind of the mukti speak of how I uh, view things. How I would put it is that the chaotic patterns really feel the presence of that stillness when it's potent, and they can entrain to uh, that stillness in a way that settles them and slows them down, and you know brings them um, a, a expression that we associate with peace and and order and um, harmony. And so when that attention is really being pumped out in, in ways that makes it more skittish, mm-hmm. uh, and, and people who are sensitive, they can really feel the movements of their, their brain and their mind, you know, being, being very um, t- tousled by the electronics and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, it does make it a little bit more difficult to express that more still attention. I mean, it's not exactly true because the part that notices the movement in mind is by its nature very still. But um, in order to give that awareness that is by contrast much more still, a home in our person and um, an integration with our body systems and and our and our attention that you're talking about, it it is helpful to have a lot of breaks from the electronics, mm-hmm. you know, just to reset and um, allow that what we might call still light of attention to really um, still our minds, and that's so powerful because you know a still mind is far less judgmental. You know, it's it's far more um, ca- capable of uh, stopping and listening and being attentive and, um, as you s- used a phrase earlier, holding space. Mm. So, yeah, I think you've made brought up a really great inquiry question. That's mm-hmm. the kind of question that all of us in this modern age can can return to, you know, on a regular basis. Yeah. Yeah, I love well I, there's two um two words that you use that I really love there and one is home. Mm-hmm. And the other is this metaphor of light. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think many people find are finding their devices almost to be like a home, like a home base, like okay, this is where everyone communicates with me. This is how mm-hmm. I interact <laughs> with the world. This is where, you know, my music is and my emails and pictures and yeah. everything. So it's yeah. like to information. Yeah, information. So to kind of um, come back one level deeper to an actual home, which is that awareness, that light you were talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um, also that using the metaphor of light is is also a bit um, I guess subversive. I don't know if that's the right word, but because you know what I'm talking about is digital light coming into our eyes, but it's <laughs> yeah. just like, no, you have your own light inside of you. That's even more powerful than 
any mm-hmm. technology right. device. So. Yeah. And it's maybe, um, maybe it's, uh, an invitation to let the pathways, uh, clear so that that can move out instead of so much incoming. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to say, I'm, you know, a person who does, you know, use my phone a lot and, mm-hmm. um, I have a lot of roles and in, in the, in this world and I'm very, um, active person in terms of just, you know, all the things that I accomplish in a day or, mm-hmm. you know, or get accomplished through me maybe more accurately. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, and I'm really grateful that I have the kind of mind and, and skill set to be able to, you know, work for the administration and open gate Sangha or for help, um, facilitate things in our, in my life and, life of our household but um it is a a kind of continuing question and inquiry in me where i have to stop and and think okay i I think i'm feeling that i need to take a break or you know it's it's a it's an awareness practice in and of itself the relationship with devices for sure yeah i I don't know if you're familiar with tristan harris um i'm not no yeah, his group is called the Center for Humane Technology. And he I think he used to work at Google. He was like a former mm. Google. But he mm-hmm. uses this, um, he talks about this, that, you know, our devices, We there's you know, thousands of engineers and psychologists and people all working against you to get your attention. You know, so it's like you really have to work you have to do the work personally to be able to put the put the device down because you're going against all of these engineers and people who are all they really want is your attention so they can show you ads basically you know so right, it's right. it's it's not it seems like it's uh, just you versus your phone but it's you versus your phone with the team of the smart probably right. some of the smartest people on the planet trying yeah. trying to take this this attention from you I think that that reminds me of a something that's dear, which is the importance of spiritual community and mm-hmm. friendships. And um, I think that for myself, what makes it easier not to be on the phone is actually making sure that my life has in its schedule, you know, things that are are um, relational. You know, whether it's time in nature or walking with friends or. Um, And because I think that I do talk to a lot of people who feel addicted to their devices and by and large, what I've noticed is it's the people that um, put placeholders in their schedule and in their day where they really just incorporate lots of other activities that are not uh, centered around devices Mm -hmm. that help them feel so much more balanced Mm -hmm. and, um, give them a um, other types of gratification in those activities than the kind of gratification you get from being on your phone or the opioid releases or those kinds of things. But we, we, we have so many other um, layers of our chemistry and our, you know, who knows what it is, pheromones and hormones and mm-hmm. everything's that's syncing up when we spend time with others and, or spend time in nature and 
or athletics or Mm -hmm. creativity or things like that, that I think um, kind of help counterbalance all of those more addictive pulls. Yeah, lovely. That's a great, great advice. And yeah, just emphasizes the importance of Sangha that you know you mm-hmm, were talking mm-hmm. about that. Yeah. So we got the team of engineers <laughs> and they might be in our Sangha too, but <laughs> but we also have, you know, this this whole host of like minded human beings who who genuinely have a true interest in exploring the inner depths of our central nature. Yeah. And that's uh I like to to think of of that number of people as as many as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As a Kalyanamita, I think that's the Pali word for like noble noble spiritual friends. Hmm. Wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I remember a, a teacher from I think the eighties, Suzanne Seagal. She used to call them buddies in the vastness. <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> Great. I just often say kindred spirits, you know. Yeah. Buddies in the Vastness, that sounds like a great band name. Doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, another thing I wanted to ask you about, um, I think you touched on this earlier in our conversation, is about paradox. Um, and what seems like our society's inability to rest in paradox, you mentioned division, you know that's that's a big theme I think in our in our modern society is is you know divisions along political and um, economic and all these different mm-hmm, spectra. Yeah. And um, there's a a quote on your website I wanted to read about paradox and and see if you could um, further continue this line of thought. But it says uh, Mukti speaks to paradoxes of spiritual unfolding, knowing and unknowing disillusion and inclusion, the transcendence and the eminent human and divine, and speaks to the spiritual journey as one of an unfolding discovery and expression. Yeah, wow, that's, that says a lot all in one thing. <laughs> um, is there a particular aspect of it, Michael, that interests you that you'd like me to elaborate on? Yeah, I think well, just in general, this idea of of holding paradoxes in our spiritual practice, so um, not rushing to to conclusions or or being okay when it seems like two contradictory things are present. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, I'm not. I, I want to mention something that I don't. I'm not super well versed in, but just to give it give this part of our conversation a springboard. I believe that Ken Wilber talks about different capacities of, of the human being. And, you know, at a certain level, a person's able to hold paradox. Right. So it's not, States and stages, that, that model. It, yeah, I believe that's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. My mind's a little rusty there. But, um, but it's not it's not necessarily easy for everybody to hold paradox. And I think that it's a great topic to talk about because it, it, it opens that possibility, you know, for people who, who are um, interested in it, but also people who feel 
maybe that it's it's something foreign. Like, what, is it, what does that even mean? Or how do you hold two things that are totally opposite at, at uh, a given time? And And so I'd like to talk about that in a minute. But I do feel that it's not um, <clears throat> necessarily a given that all human beings are sort of put together to hold paradox um, until they are, you know. But I think that's um, a great segue into what is it that does hold paradox uh, easily? What is it in our nature that does that? And I love to use this exercise, which I use quite often, which is um, if you take two opposites, um, it could be, let's say, in spiritual circles that are um, circling near the Advaita teachings, mm-hmm. you know, it could be a person who asserts, you know, I'm nothing. Mm-hmm. And I like to tell people, why don't you just hold that in one of your palms out in front of you, just the notion, like I'm nothing. And as though you're, it's just like a placeholder for that part of yourself that, that senses like, oh, I'm, I'm nothing or I don't exist, mm-hmm. you know, or I don't exist as a separate I. Um, and so you can hold that on one hand and then in the other hand with your other palm up, you hold the, the notion like I, I'm someone, you know, I'm, I'm something. And, and I think there, there are many people that have bumped into states or perspectives or, or feeling that they are nothing or feeling that they are some, something or that they are no one or they are someone. And sometimes that can be a difficult flavor like, wow, no one sees me or no one's, you know, acknowledging me. And I feel like I'm no one, you know, and that can be a, a sense of no one that's founded in a sense of lack um, or like a missing experience, you know. And then um, there's also a sense of no one that people bump into when they look for a fundamental sense of I you know, who am I? Who is it that's having this feeling? Who is it that's living this life? And they look deeply into that question and they can't really find a, like a specific, some, something that they can pull out of the air and say, this is exactly what I am. That's, you know, confined, confined to this one notion or one location or one memory or, um, entity. And so, the more people look into that question, they may feel like, wow, there's all these thoughts and feelings and, and physical experiences, sensations, but there isn't a particular someone that they're occurring to that's distinct and apart um, that's, um, that we can single out as, as a fundamental I or me, me ego structure sometimes used. And so when people really get that, there's this dawning of, oh my gosh, I spent this whole life, you know, advocating for the sense of me that I can't even find. Mm-hmm. And um, I, it feels more true to say I'm, I'm nothing in particular, you know? Um, and so there is that experience, but also sometimes people really have the opposite feeling like, Hey, you know, I'm here, pay mm-hmm. attention. And, you know, I have certain wants and desires and, you know, um, if you hit me, that hurts. And there is a someone here. 
And, um, and if you love me, that feels great. And so if, if a person spends time holding these opposites and even doing this exercise, holding them in their palms, and then they notice that what's observing each given conclusion about, about what's present, you know, I'm someone or I'm no one, I'm something or I'm nothing. And you just really look at those and you get a sense that what's looking isn't taking sides. Mm. You just it's just simply seeing and looking and observing and bearing witness to both constellations that conclude someone or no one. But what's looking has this impartial, like unconditional witnessing that is is really quite different. And would we say that that holds paradox, that it witnesses paradox? that it expresses as paradox. These are all different perspectives that people can visit, mm. you know, like, oh, this that's looking out my eyes is a, a consciousness that isn't conditioned, but look at how it can constellate all, around all these thoughts that create this conclusion. And wow, it's as though that very same consciousness can gather into a very concretized belief that lands in one palm or the other. And, um, and so I think that the nature of paradox is, is that it, um, I think it's um, inhabited more easily the less there is a, a really invested sense of separate self that has to organize around beliefs or conclusions that land in on one side of duality or another, mm -hmm. the more a person kind of sees through the habits to, you know, vehemently hold on to this conclusion or that conclusion, you know, the more a person uh, eases out of those concretizations and, and, and has a more spacious sense of being and a more spacious consciousness, the more that very space of what you are just naturally sort of holds um, opposites and the opposites just kind of find their dance with each other and, and or their integration or their distinctness in, in whatever ways sort of suit the moment, you know? And sometimes it's more of an individuation of of you know a very distinct personhood that comes forward and mm -hmm. and and that's our experience and then when that's perhaps not as needed and we relax more into a, a more holistic or i don't know if more holistic but just more spacious sense of being then maybe the experience feels more like we're nothing you know than than some something and i think that there's just a dance of what kind of takes the, the foreground and background and how those flow.
Yeah, I love that framing of the holding of paradox as a gateway to non-duality, to, to seeing that witness that you described that's beyond the, the two things that seem to be in paradox and seeing like, okay, well, what is it that notices that there's even a paradox present? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that can be the entry point. Mm-hmm. And then the more that's really um, inhabited, the more I feel like the attention that would be tracking those things um, kind of softens into a more general awareness. Mm-hmm. Like I think of attention as really focused awareness. Yeah. And when the attention has an opportunity to not have to have a, a vehement focus to, to pull, you know, pull at it. Mm-hmm. And it becomes more global, for example. This is another entry point would just be like global listening or global sensing, listening. That's why people love to go for walks or spend time in nature too. They just sort of naturally let their attention stretch out. Right. And I think that that in that there's a, a way that uh, that witness that feels like it's sort of at the the helm of attention, mm-hmm. you know, that even that witness and that focus attention just sort of softens into a more general awareness where, you know, there's a greater connection with all of life, what I sometimes call the big body around mm-hmm. our local body. And we do get a more of a sense of the moment arising as a whole, mm-hmm. like inside it might be our own thoughts and emotions or sensations outside might be the birds or the winds or the car going by or the lawnmower or the neighbor. But it, it, it feels more like a whole orchestra of the moment right. that's bubbling up. And, and uh, that just so naturally holds opposites and doesn't even really know the term paradox. Right. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm really, I'm feeling that, that the, energy of attention still feels very localized and um, happening you know directly to me whereas awareness this more uh, you know you talked about open listening and an open field of awareness it starts to become much more radically impersonal and much more open and maybe that even can be a gateway into the collective consciousness that we're all sharing is because there's no edge to that awareness mm-hmm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. You know, our, our sensed, the, the awareness that we experience uh, subjectively is only limited by our human senses, I guess. And there's a, a much greater interconnected field of awareness that's even beyond sensory perception. Yeah. Um, I hear what you're saying about that entry point into the share, like a shared. Mm-hmm. A shared, uh, what, what do we call it? Maybe field of awareness or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I could say I, I, I was interested in what you said about it being limited by our our senses because that's that's certainly true. Like you know, our like let's say our awareness of sound mm-hmm. only travels as far as our hearing. Yeah. But it could be that our systems sense things beyond that. That for sure. That, I mean, that's a whole other topic. <laughs> but also I think that our senses um, maybe limit that. Uh, our, our, our scope of awareness. But 
maybe they also just give um, awareness uh, an instrument to know itself, mm-hmm. you know, that maybe it wouldn't be able to. And so therefore, um, not sure what the opposite of the word limit would be, but once again, we're talking about paradox, right? Yeah. Where it potentiates um, the ability for awareness to know itself or, you know, earlier I used the word home and, you know, it gives um, an instrument, a homing instrument for awareness to uh, function through senses, you know. Yeah, uh, an experience is coming to mind about 15 years ago. So I lived in the city and um, I would practice meditation in my apartment and it was on the ground floor uh, in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of traffic noises and there was other tall buildings across the street. So the sound field where I was meditating was very dense and very closed, you know. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then I went on a meditation retreat um, just in the suburbs of Philadelphia um, in the countryside and just the sound field while I was meditating just opened up so drastically. And I could hear birds that seemed like they were miles away. And there yeah. was this, it's just an expansiveness in my consciousness. And I said, oh, my consciousness isn't, is, is unbound. It's limitless, you know? <laughs> yeah, I love it. You know? and, yeah. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, you think about, you know, we can hear it maybe like an airplane, let's say that's the furthest thing we think we can hear. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if you remember this, a few years ago they, they recorded the sound of two black holes colliding. There was like an mm. instrument on Earth that caught the vibration of these two black holes that were whatever, millions of light years away. And mm. wow. that just expands again where, what, what our consciousness can perceive, you know. Yes, yes. And, then, and all of that's here in this, mo- in this moment in our experience. Yeah, yeah. I loved how when I studied acupuncture, they would talk about um, this sense of um, holographic being. And like, let's say, for example, you, you know, you wanted to treat someone's um, neck pain or something Mm -hmm. that you could find a spot for the neck in the map of the ear or in the map of the hand or in the map of the foot or you know, you could you could um, narrow it down and narrow it down, and you know, maybe like in every fingernail, you could find a map of the whole body, or you know, who knows? Like all the ways that it was, you know, very holographic, like to the tiniest point. And there's been acupuncturists throughout history that have maybe like treated every condition from one point in the body. You know, like they always use kidney three near the ankle, or. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like the, as you know well, Michael, the like the the numbering system for a certain point in the body. Um, but that there's this sense that the whole of it is is present in any teeny part of it, and that it's in, infinitely divisible. And I love that story about the two black holes colliding, you know, and in this like light years away, but how there's this, this here, mm-hmm. you know, that recognizes it right, right here in our, in our tiny little earth in the middle of the universe or, or our um, tiny little instrument that's on the, the larger earth. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I love that you're bringing up 
the you know the holo- holographic nature of these practices because it's actually come up on several other episodes. We were t- speaking with uh, Kabira Helminski about Rumi, and he was mm. talking about the language, the poetry of Rumi, how that was holographic, how in each word of Rumi's poems, it can open up into all these other poems that Rumi has written, which open up wow. to all these, you know, thoughts about God and the universe and creation and science and. Um, oh my goodness! How know. rich! Yeah, I remember one time um, when there were fires in California in, in the Sonoma County region, which is where I grew up. I I was living um, maybe about two and a half hour drive by car from there, mm-hmm. but um, one night I I was woken from sleep and there was this really erratic, skittish energy going in my brain. Mm-hmm. And I remember kind of feeling like it was very flickery mm-hmm. and chaotic. And I thought, I've never experienced this in my life. You know, this particular brand of my mind moving. And I was just really compelled to just offer this energy that was so frantic. You know, the, just this really still light of attention. And I was just like beaming Still, stillness to this energy like all night long it was mm. hour after hour wow. and then the next morning I woke up and I found out about oh. all these uh, family members and and schoolmates and and people from my childhood community whose you know homes had burned or who were running from fire or who got burned themselves or were fighting fires as firemen and mm. um, nursing and all kinds of things. And I thought, wow, isn't that amazing? You know, just that connection that we have in, in ways that, um, you know, just registers right here in our own states and our own bodies. And it, it was just a very, you know, concrete, you know, experience where I really, really got a sense of that. Yeah. Well, I, I, I sense it's from your decades of practice too that you were able to create the space to even um, notice this flickering, but then to connect that flickering sense to the um, yeah the the environmental catastrophe that was unfolding. Yeah, and I just was following my nature, mm-hmm. you know, which was I was just drawn to like invite those. Um, f- frenetic patterns to be aware of the stillness that was present also mm-hmm. and just like help them be conscious that stillness is here and you know that that stillness is um, that I was I was just kind of instinctively offering that stillness to the chaos so that it might you know feel that support you know and um but I had no idea why it was happening or what was going on in terms of the historic unfolding of events, you know. Mm-hmm. But it was just like an instinct. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what, something you said earlier in our conversation about the importance of the um, the basics and the fundamentals of a of, you know a meditation practice, and I guess mm-hmm. it, it, you can think of it as like the meditation practice is developing. An intimacy with stillness, so you can access it whenever you need it. So, like even in the chaos of, of you know, yes. 
massive forest fires, you know, so that it's there, that flavor of stillness is, is still present in you so you can access it when you need it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I do find that practice helps, helps that access be much more available and, and at the ready, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and sometimes, um, sometimes life puts us in situations where, you know, we can't call upon those qualities on demand, sure, <laughs> you know, I think. Yeah. Um, but um, there's plenty of times where it just sort of pushes to the foreground, you know, it can yeah. And I think that when there's practices where we've continually invited that stillness into the for- foreground of our experience and, you know, kind of really given it residency in our being, then we have that, those kind of um, patterns of, of architecture in our being to really um, express, hold and express that. Adi Ashanti earlier, your husband, and he's a well-known teacher to the sand community. And I'm just curious how you two have navigated kind of being public figures, but having this, you know, like an intimate marriage relationship. Like how do you find the boundaries between, um, you know, maybe if there's like arguments or tension at home, how you, you know, don't throw, you know, the absolute nature of reality in each other's faces if there's a disagreement, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> Oh, there's some structures that we have in place that really help us. Mm-hmm. Um, for example, um, very early on when Adya um, first began to teach, he made it really clear that he he never wanted to have a, a set um, retreat center or meditation center or something like that, that that he would prefer to, you know, go where he was invited. And, and this was sort of before online was really a thing. And, you know, almost 30 years ago. And so I, I felt like that was um, a real support to our autonomy as a couple and, you know, that we could go home to our own home that, wouldn't be necessarily on a retreat site or at a center where people could knock on our door 24 seven or, you know, so we could really step away from our, our roles in teaching or, you know, being leaders of a a community. And um, I'm forever grateful for that because that's just really worked very, very well for us to have that distinction Mm -hmm. and to have that sanctuary of home. That's like a, a place where we can be, independent of 
of those roles. Um, so that's been super helpful. It's also incredibly helpful that that he and I are just really hooked up for monogamy, like through and through. And um, and so that's very helpful for how it works for us anyway. Um, and let's see, we're also um, both, for the most part, um, I don't know if this is actually true what I'm about to say. When we first met, I would say that we were both very conflict averse. Mm -hmm. um, I think now we're much more comfortable with conflict. Um, not that we have much between the two of us, but I think that, you know, I think sometimes we have to, to lean in to what we're um, have a version for and, and, you know, get to unpack it and, and get a little more familiar with those waters. And as we've, you know, hopefully matured and grown as people over the, the decades, you know, I think that that's easier. It's, um, it's not necessarily our go-to, you know, conflict, but, but um, a little bit more at ease with it. But he and I, we're just a little bit you know, maybe different than other people, maybe not, I don't know, but we, we just don't have a ton of conflict mm. and we never have, yeah. even when we're dating or through our whole marriage, it just hasn't been a theme. Um, to say we don't disagree sometimes, um, I mean, that's not to say we don't disagree sometimes because we do and we have very different hookups, you know. Um, he has an incredible gift for clarity and um, just seeing things um in, in ways that sometimes I don't first pick up on, but I have a, a more, I would believe, I, this is my story about it anyway, is I, I may have a more adept sense of feeling and picking up on things in, in, um, in a more kinesthetic way where I might just sense or intuit that there's something else we need to pay attention to or or um, I'm very relational and people oriented. So that's kind of more of where my development has been in life. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'll, I'll bring his attention to the needs of certain individuals or, you know, more of the, at the people level, he's very amazing at big picture mm -hmm. and I'm incredibly detailed. Mm -hmm. So it's a good, good contract compliment. Um, but, but it also makes for uh, sometimes a need to, you know, kind of find the meeting ground and, you know, um, uh, hashing things out a little bit more. And, and again, so we don't always agree, but um, there's so much um, fondness there, just deep, deep fondness and wish for the other's well-being and happiness that it's it's it just seems to work for us because he – so wishes for my happiness and I so wish for his that we kind of got each other covered. And um, that that seems to be the way that things work. As far as your question about like, do we, you know, pull out the uh, kind of absolute card or um, we're just not really hooked up that way because of how our awakenings unfolded. They're very... Um, tied in with the heart and especially the hara because of Adya's training in Zen and his training of me. Uh, there's, you know, such a, a way that 
our human consciousness really invited spirit into the core depths of being, like even in a physical energetic sense that, um, and there's such an emphasis on that strong foundation of posture and that rooted, grounded, still quality that is um, kind of the hallmark of Zen and that, that um, cultivation of Hara energy and um, through the attunement of consciousness to that specific center, you know, it's, it's going to be different than, like each awakening is different. If it's, let's say a person's focus is on the spiritual eye or somebody else's is on the heart mm-hmm. and somebody else's is on the hara and um, each awakening is going to unfold a little bit differently. And so because our, our concentration is so heavily weighted in the hara, it doesn't tend to be as top heavy as a realization that would be as prone to prefer transcendence or to prefer absolute absolutist views. You know, I I feel it's it's a it's a sort of bridging of that light of consciousness that shines through our eyes that we were talking about earlier, but it's bridging it into the body, into the very source of the breath. And you know, into where the the breath ultimately arises from that that sense of the what what in what in my circles or an open gate we call the ground of being, and so I think it just translates into a different type of awakening that isn't as prone to you know pulling that absolute card as a kind of yeah. uh, run around to to avoid you know the concrete experience of what's actually happening. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, no, I think I think people will uh, appreciate hearing that maybe people who are also in a relationship with someone else who's um, on the spiritual path or in the, the path of awakening mm-hmm. to, to kind of help orient to hear your, your story with audio, with, mm-hmm. which sounds really lovely. So thanks for sharing yeah. all that. Sure. If they're interested in more of that um, topic, mm-hmm. uh, he and I did a number of years back um, create a product with Sounds True, mm-hmm. uh, who's a publisher, and you can find them online. And the product's called The One of Us. Mm, okay. And we, um, he, Adi and I are really clear that it's it's not our role in life to, you know, like step forward as relationship teachers, um, and nor is it really our focus. Mm-hmm. But um, for that product, we, we, um, we were interviewed and we were encouraged to talk about, you know, dharmic relationship. You could yeah. say, yeah, um, cool. Yeah, we'll we'll have yeah. a link to that in our show notes. I, I'll look that up and people can okay, great. Can check that out. Nice. Well, this has been a, a very wide-reaching, uh, both wide-reaching and deep conversation. So I'm really appreciative of of your time and and your. Uh, attention and energy today, Mukti. So thanks so much. And um, you mentioned you have a mm-hmm. um, the Energetics of Awakening course, which is starting in June, you said? I do, yeah. Okay. Yeah, there's more information on our website. Uh, we actually have like a, a triple website. So there's the opengatesangha.org, mm-hmm. but then it has a whole, like you just click on the Adya site or the mm-hmm. Mukti site, and it's just, it's literally like three sites linked. Gotcha. But all of them have the calendar uh, in the program section. Mm-hmm. 
And when you just look at the calendar for June, you'll see the the talk series and um, can click on that for more information. Great. Very nice. Yeah. Well, also, Michael, I really appreciate all that you put into the questions. Um, I was really relieved when your first question wasn't like, tell me about your awakening, because that's like the, the, the first question of almost every interview. Right. And um, I really love like diving, you know, deeper into the pool. So so thank you for for all that you brought to in terms of questions and Thank preparation you. yeah no yeah i, I find I, my, as a listener i'm kind of always less interested in what happened before the awakening <laughs> I, wanna, <laughs> yeah. I wanted to kind of know what's happening now you know when you hear yeah where, where are these people now <laughs> i love that yeah. yeah and thank you for listening to the sounds of sand we invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of SAND content, available exclusively to SAND members. And we would love it if you could leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify and share this episode with your family, friends, and all sentient beings. Be well.